that first clap gets me every time, man. Yeah, I heard I it. Know. I heard your your limp wrist go. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a tough one out of the gate. Wow. Well, here we are. This is episode 74 of Gearbuds Podcast. I'm Henry. You've got Dave on the line. Hey-o. And we also have a super special guest that we're super stoked about, Mr. Sean O'Keefe, producer, mix engineer, all-around great dude. What's up, dude? Welcome. All right. Hey. We are so thankful and happy to have you here, and we're going to spend a lot of time <clears throat> digging into your past and history and those Grammy nominations and all that cool shit that you've, you've had through your career. Uh, but first, we've got our usual stuff that we like to get through here, and we're going to dive right into the Symphony of Corrections. Here is your weekly reminder that cables are tone tubes. Thank you, listeners far and wide. Continue to give us feedback and let us know what you think of the show and what you want to hear. Keep following us Instagram, Facebook, if you're not already, at GearBuds Podcast. Subscribe in all the places where you like to listen to podcasts. I've been updating uh, GearBudsPodcast.com slash free stuff with all the free VSTs and plugins and cool stuff that's out there right now. Nothing, uh, nothing. This is a short week here. We're, we're recording early, so I didn't have anything new to add for this time, but there might be something by the time this episode comes out. So okay. always go back and you know check that shit out. Uh, got a little update for the sub-segment, Bad Fucking Ideas. Uh, and this <laughs> is a little bit of a departure from the usual here, but uh, it's still a bad fucking idea. Um, and that is, uh, starting October 1st, visa fees for foreign artists touring the, U- the U.S. are going to increase by over 50%. What? Yeah, yeah. I heard about this. This is awful. Oh, my it's God. It's so fucking awful. That is a it, lot. It's all, all it's going to do is disincentivize the amazing artists and musicians that we already want to have come here touring the U.S., of course, when that can happen again. Uh, it's just making it more expensive. I think it's something like it jumped from, you know, 400 bucks to like 700 bucks or something like that. Uh, and then you can also, if you need to, pay an extra $1,000 to have that rushed. Um, I just don't understand why, as a nation, we decided to disincentivize foreign artist from coming to our land and entertaining our people like can did either of you have any any good reason for this no, <laughs> no man no, no some of the best artists in the world are, are from overseas so that's crazy yeah so that's a bad fucking idea not a fan screw you u.s department of homeland security uh last thing here in the symphony just as always a reminder to go visit saveourstages.com uh, we've been talking about it a lot lately. Uh, it is becoming more important now than ever uh, as time goes on to go in and make your voice heard. There are a lot of resources there where you can, even if you don't have money to donate, which most of us don't right now, there are still things that you can do to take action to save our venues that we all love and want to remain open. So again, saveourstages.com. Please go visit that and hit up your local congresspeople. Cool. And that was a really fast symphony. I feel like either because I'm just excited to get to the next segment or there just wasn't as much to talk about this week. Either way, I now get to say my favorite two words every single week, and that is Dave's Docs. Yeah, man. Kicking it off. Kicking off. With what do Dave, you got, dude? Kicking it off with Dave's Docs this week. Um, well, I had to I had to do a short one because for a few reasons, like you said, um, you know, shorter week, shorter week to get one in. And I also I decided, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about our guest today, so I'm not going to I'm not going to take too much time. So I picked an artist with a with a really short career. Unfortunately, um, I found a documentary on Jim Croce online. Are you guys familiar with Jim Croce at all? I hope so. I mean, no his name. No, so, please tell me. So he's, he's a great American folk and rock singer, um, more folk, more songwritery. 
from the you know mid '60s to early '70s. Um, he was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or I, I think Philadelphia, somewhere in Pennsylvania, and um, basically was just you know this kind of badass songwriter guy, really nice dude, kind of the salt of the earth type of guy, and um, he he tried like. I would say for a solid 10 years to get picked up by a label. He had a, he had a couple recordings that kind of flopped. Um, and then he, he found these, uh, the, these couple engineers and producers that kind of took interest in him. So they were like, well, Hey man, you know, we're going to, we're going to do whatever we can to shop you around. We're going to record a couple of your songs and we're going to, we're going to get you out there to the world. They said they probably took him to like 40 different record labels and nobody wanted a piece of this guy for some reason. Um, couldn't do it, couldn't do it. Finally, they got in touch with, I think it was like ABC Records or something, a pretty big label. And they picked him up and they put his song on the radio and it blew up totally. So he had like, mm. you know, Don't Mess Around With Jim, Operator. You know, these are famous songs. I'm sure if you heard them, you would absolutely mm. know. Um, they picked him up. He blows up on the radio, right? They start playing his song all over the US. Yeah, he starts touring around. He's opening for, you know, huge bands. And this is probably around like 72. Um, he records a record. His third record he records was like the big record. Like it had all the hit songs on it. I own a copy of it. Um, and he, the day it was released, he died in a plane crash. And that, oh, shit. And that was it. Yeah, 1973, literally the day it was released. He played a show um, at some college in, I think it was Louisiana, and they were going to fly to to another gig and meet up with everybody and kind of celebrate this record release. And sure enough, uh, plane crashes right out of the sky. And uh, the guy, you know, he died with a bunch of with uh, five other people. And now his legacy just lives on through his records. And um, I got to say, man, if, if you guys if you guys don't know any Jim Croce or, or have ever experienced his records, really good kind of chilling with a cup of coffee, folk music, um, really fun songs. And um, it's a shame. You you really wonder, you know, what what he could have done with another, you know, thirty years of a career or something like that. So, it's uh it's kind of a sad story. But but you know, the nice thing was, I mean, the the kind of the takeaway I got from the movie was that he had all these people trying to lift him up. There were like, you know, his managers and his producers and anybody he ever worked with and friends and other musicians were always like, you got to sign this guy. This guy's the best. So they finally did, and then you know, then of course the. Uh, the tragic thing happens. So damn, dude. Yeah, wow. um, hardcore. Yeah, I didn't want to bring it down too bad, so I'm keeping it mm. short today. But yeah. uh, the the movie's called. Well, no, it's it's. Oh, thank you. That's. A, I was just gonna ask, what's it called? Yeah, the movie's called Songman. Um, I think it came out in like, you know, earlier 2000s. It's not really well done. Um, I don't even know if it's a licensed documentary. There's not a lot of like audio of him actually playing. There's some cool interviews with him. Yeah. Just seemed like the nicest guy in the world, man. He he kind of had that look like he had like the denim shirt look, kind of like our boy Gordy Lightfoot from last week's episode. Dude. Yeah. Major, major Gordon Lightfoot vibes here. And and I wanted to quickly shout out, uh, I don't even know, however many weeks ago, Mr. Stephen Shirk was on the show and he actually texted me yesterday uh, to talk about Sundown specifically by Gordon Lightfoot. Yes. And, and, and I got to say, that song does fucking rip, man. Yeah. Like, it's I, awesome. I could, I, I, don't, I never, first of all, I never knew that that was also Gordon Lightfoot. The drums on that song, mm-hmm. that is just like peak 70s drum perfection. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, man. So good. Yeah. All right. So what's your, what's your, uh, what's your totally arbitrary uh, ranking? Well, Croce, uh, I, I got a <laughs> shout out. He's got a, a giant, like, uh, Frank Zappa style mustache. So oh. I'm, I'm going to give this one um, 
as an artist, I'm going to give him a five out of five fat mustaches. As the as the movie goes, I'm going to give him like you know a, a three out of five five fat mustaches for sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but uh, if you guys honestly, if you if you haven't, man, sit down, listen to some Jim Croce today. Um, you know, let's celebrate his life and uh, and definitely enjoy his music because it's it's out there for us. So That's beautiful awesome. words, my friend. I'm going to I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna check out some some of the Croce. Awesome. Do, do, do it Croce style. Nice. All right, man. Well, I'm going to keep in the 70s here since uh, since we're already there. And, th- and this wasn't even planned, but this record that I'm going right. to talk about for the Riff Library here, uh, if the, if, you, if you're a new listener or you just don't know, Riff Library is where I talk about uh, one of my favorite records of all time that I, that I have on vinyl. And this week we're t- throwing it back to 1972. Uh, are, do, you guys, do you guys fuck with Captain Beefheart? Uh, a little. Okay. Dave, what about yeah, you, man? I, honestly, man, I've never really sat down. I think I, I think you played me some one time when I was over at your place. We we rocked out to it a little bit. I know you're a big fan. Yeah, um, I am. I'm a big fan. Well, what can All you right, tell Well, us? this is perfect then. This is great because – so to take a quick step back, I would say you ask nine people out of ten for a recommendation on a Captain Beefheart record, they're going to tell you Trout Mass Re- Replica. That's kind of like the, the peak of his super creative, weird, outsider art kind of collage Captain Beefheart music. Well, my personal favorite and the one that I'm going to talk about today came out in 1972 and it's called Clear Spot. And this was a record that in some ways was they did try or I should say he Captain Beefheart Don Van Vliet did try to make something a little more commercially accessible in some ways. Mm. Um, So in in doing so, they they worked with producer Ted Templeman. It was engineered by Don Landy. Mm. Uh, Just it, it especially for the time, but oh my God, sonically, the record is incredible. It sounds so good. Um, I do not, unfortunately, have the original pressing. My pressing, I probably bought this like, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. I guess the original pressing, it was literally just a clear, just a clear, because the record's called Clear Spot. It was just sort of like a clear sleeve with a black record in the middle of the record being the spot. There was like no information or anything, mm-hmm. which is frankly pretty pretty badass. Yeah, unfortunately, mine is just like the, the sort of second edition where it's got a picture of them and some sort of weird control control station uh, mm-hmm. on the front um but so uh, if you don't know i mean beefheart he whenever members would would join the magic band he would give them new new names so like <laughs> the people on the record are, are zoot horn rollo and rockette morton and Ed marimba <laughs> um and then and then uh, Orejon, uh, who is actually Roy Estrada, who was originally in the mother. A lot of these guys were in the Mothers of Invention, Frank Zappa's oh, band. Hell but yeah. he also played. He also played with Little Feet. He was the bass player in that band. Dave, I've got to tell you, as a bass player, you are gonna fucking love this guy. Yeah. Not for his personal life. He actually went to jail for some really heinous stuff. But before that, <laughs> he was an amazing, super inventive bass player. Yeah, I've heard um, the name for sure. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Mm. So the the part like the the first of all the songs I think of all of the, his entire oeuvre. These are this record has the best songs, just like well written songs. Um, so that that's a, a very sort of nice way to get your way into Captain Beefheart. Mm. I will say that there are uh, I I think the record is almost perfect top to bottom. There is one song on side one that is just like a total skipper. Um, but if you if you've never listened to Captain Beefheart before, check out "Her Eyes Are a Blue Million Miles" or "Big Eyed Beans from Venus." Uh, Venus. Those are my two favorite songs, and they happen one after the other on side two. In fact, if I now that I'm thinking about it, I'm pretty sure "Her Eyes Are a Blue Million Miles" was on the uh, Big Lebowski soundtrack. 
So uh, that might be nice. something oh, that perfect. you've ever heard before. That cool. you've heard before. Yeah. Um, it's just like this sort of nasty Delta bluesy art pop music. Um, there's even some, and I and I say this as a metal fan. There is almost some sort of proto metal that happens in a few of the songs, which is pretty wild. And again, this is 1972. Um, there's some really cool production choices too. Like all of a sudden, in the middle of a song, it'll just like drop out to a drum solo with like a huge amount of flange and panning happening from side <laughs> to side, or like a, a really crazy deep synth gurgle that happens. Um, the other thing I'll say is that the songs sound on their surface they sound super. I don't know if I'd say basic or, or easy or, or kind of rudimentary, but then when you actually start trying, like I've gone and tried to play along to some of these, not even just on guitar, but like the drum parts are fucking crazy. Yeah. There are, it is, there is no just like straight four, you know, hitting, hitting the hats on the eighth notes or whatever. Right, it is right. just, it, everything is like this really strangely constructed part that all when it comes together, it kind of sounds like a pop song, but then when you, when you break it apart, it's like these, just these really strange elements going into it. Um, I feel like I'm rambling at this point. Just go listen to it. Captain B farting in the magic okay. band clear spot it is my favorite beef heart record and just one of my one of my favorite records of all time all right we're sending uh, we're sending the fans out with some with some new recommendations today for sure yeah keeping it in the 70s i'll also as always throw this in the uh gear buds podcast playlist that we have on spotify with all these these weekly riff library choices in there i'll put that in so y'all can have easy access to it because it is now on spotify hell yeah all right that is enough babbling for now and now let us turn our attention to our esteemed guest sean o'keefe and we'll we'll start here with uh, what we call a couple two tree randos where we ask you a couple two tree rando questions to get to know you just a little bit better um <laughs> first question if you could swap places any band member any band past or present living or dead despite your talent or theirs who <laughs> would that be and why oh man that's a that's a deep question <laughs> yes sir <laughs> holy cow okay wait can you can you repeat that i gotta i gotta let this yeah roll through my brain i like this totally you could swap places any band member any band past mm. or present okay. living or dead despite your talent level or theirs so it does this is just a pure fantasy like yep. i want to be that person no rules some yeah. people some people are like i want to be fucking beethoven yeah other people right. have been like i just want to be you know the auxiliary percussionist in the background so i can just hang out <laughs> like it, there's there's no right way to approach uh, this really. I, I love it that's kind of what i'm thinking i i, I want to be let's see i would love to be anybody from that john bryan hired on the fiona apple record win the pawn oh, and so and, and and largely so i can see how john and fiona were working together and i and anybody else in the room so maybe just because uh i'll, I'll say matt chamberlain because then i get to see oh, how he's miking yeah. my drums <laughs> and, and, so i'll pick that that sounds pretty fun and his, and his like craviato kits that he plays right that's right uh, yeah <laughs> All right. Awesome. Awesome answer, man. I got to go listen to some John Bryan. It's been too long. Oh man. All so right. good. Uh, what was your first concert? Oh boy. Um, let's see. I think my first real concert, um, was I went, let's see, I think I was in the seventh grade, somewhere around there. And my friend's dad took us to U2, uh, and it was like outside, I think it, whatever that amphitheater is, um, you know, down in Tinley. I th maybe that or in Wisconsin. There's one in Wisconsin, right? Alpine, Alpine Valley. Oh, Alpine yeah. Valley. Yeah. And it was it was the Zoo TV uh, tour. Um, Crazy. Yeah, and that's at least the first one that I can remember going to. 
pretty wild. That's a that's a that's a big show. Yeah. So do you do you have other than just going? Do you have any sort of like specific memories of the event? Yeah. I mean, you know, I I remember like you know we were in the lawn and and I remember the the massive like TV screens, which was obviously kind of part of the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. And. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know, I don't think I knew you two much more than just, you know, some of the songs that were kind of on the radio at that point, you know, obviously I wasn't like a, a you know, a deep um, music guy um, in the sixth grade or, you know, um, <laughs> you weren't, you weren't, you weren't an edgehead yet. No, not even close. <laughs> uh, although, although my, my friend, he was, was a massive U2 fan. So to be fair, I, I probably heard a lot of U2 just, you know, yeah. whatever, hanging around his house but um and i don't you know i just have some vague memories of of just kind of the massiveness of it and the excitement of it um and i would say that's probably the extent um yeah my memories on that one damn dude come in with a bang awesome yeah it's, it's a pretty cool first concert you know um no kidding yeah they do yeah. big production too so i could dig it that was m- massive production yeah if you had a time machine where would you go? And then I decided uh, to add this question. And what gear would you buy? Oh, this is great. So is it time machine going backwards? I can't go forwards. <laughs> you can go forward if yeah. you want to. I, that's what I chose when I was asked this question. <clears throat> I like that. I mean, my first thought is I want to go forwards just because I want to see what the hell's going on. You know, it's like, yep. uh, yeah. But then then I guess if I'm going forwards, what gear would I buy? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you could make something up really quick. <laughs> yeah. Can, can I buy just like the, you know, the thing that totally changes the game, basically, that we don't have yet so I can bring it back yeah. and start messing with it that's what i was hoping for exactly <laughs> you'll keep it secret but you'll have to come back on the show and tell us about it sometime. that's right yeah. yeah yeah that sounds good all right uh this one actually so i wanted to re-ask this question because it wasn't really fair uh to ask our friend rob gibson because he's not an audio guy but this can't that's actually come from Stephen shirk we've already mentioned oh i love shirk and he wants to know eq before or after compression oh oh <laughs> from me he wants to know that from me Mm-hmm. He wants he he didn't know that it was going to be you, but I want to know from you. Oh, I dig that. Okay, okay, right, right, right. That's right. Yeah, uh, EQ before or after uh, compression, um, both. Can, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's correct. That's an answer. <laughs> Can I take both? I get to take both in my studio. <laughs> Hell yeah! My system allows me to do that. Hell yeah! Well, I can't wait to learn more about that system. Last question. <laughs> Uh, you don't get to know who it is, but uh, what question would you like us to ask our next guest on your behalf? Oh, I love it. Okay. Um, wow. And 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 is this next guest uh, maybe a, a recording guy or or maybe not just a, a audio guy? Someone someone that either uses or makes music gear. That's all we can really say. Uses or makes. Um, okay. Great. Um, let's see. Um, Okay, I, I'm I'm defaulting to somebody, you know, like a shirk, uh, and hopefully, sure. hopefully, it's appropriate. Um, let's see. Do you um, only because I I just kind of started thinking about this and asking a, a good friend of mine about it, um, and I'm trying to learn. Uh, do you consider or um, pay any attention to <laughs> or implement any sort of system in your mixing environment that has you keep an eye on your overall? Um, 
levels of, of your mix. And I don't just mean your, your basic gain staging, but your there's some fancy term, uh, UL something. It's four, yeah. four letters, and, and it's something that I should probably know about as a professional mixer, but I don't. <laughs> Is this the thing where it's like you're supposed to have your monitor set at like 88 decibels or something like that? Maybe. There's like a special, there's like so supposedly some some sweet spot where like that is where you're supposed to mix. I've heard well, about I this think, before. I think that that, I, I believe what you're referring to is playback volume. Uh, if, yeah, if, yeah, 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 yeah. So what I'm referring to is actually the, the print level of your physical mix. So your mix oh. has a certain amount of headroom. And so when, when you deliver it to a client or to an artist or to mastering, um, it'll have a different degree of headroom uh, when you go to say mastering, for instance, and my mastering engineer generally wants a certain level of this number, this letter, whatever this term is called, huh. and and I don't, and there are meters that can kind of. Um, uh, that can show you that response, and the, and people have those physical meters hooked up on their systems, and and I don't know anything about it, and I feel like I should, and so that's my question to the next guy. <laughs> Damn, uh, that's my question now too. I need I yeah. need to look into this. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, and I want to listen to your the his answer because I need to learn too. <laughs> Sweet. Well, hopefully, whoever this next guest is will know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if not, we'll save it for the next uh, producer mix engineer. All right, and good. We'll ask them. Good, good. Sweet. All right. Well, that was a couple two tree randals. Let's just get into this uh, into this thing here. So we already sort of uh, kind of went a little bit back down to the back to that U two show. So um, where did you where did you grow up? Or you're from the Chicago area originally, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm from. Um, uh, Will met uh, so basically uh, the northern suburbs of Chicago, just north of the city. Yes, that makes sense now uh, that I know that. Considering who I know, you've also worked with, and which we'll get to that. Mm. Uh, when when did the sort of like I mean, you sort of mentioned that you weren't already like a, a music crazy U two aficionado. Were you already a big music fan at that point? Were you kind of were you playing any instruments? When did that all happen? Yeah, that um, that started happening probably right after like um, seventh grade or so. I started getting um, in, super interested in, in music and um, and I started with guitar. Um, yeah, and that's basically when I kind of got bit by the music, you know, bug. Um, and um, yeah, and you know, like Slash was my idol in in the seventh and eighth grade. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I was su- super into Guns N' Roses, um, and um, and then obviously that evolved, and um, and eventually, kind of through high school, I I, I uh, switched from guitar to drums. Drums felt like a more like. Uh, it was just more fun for me. Uh, our drummer left his drum set at our house, and I was, um, I was playing that like way more. And so I kind of just, uh, you know, uh, evolved into the into a, a drummer situation. <laughs> totally. Uh, do you have any of those? Uh, do you still have any of your early instruments that you got back then? Uh, that's a good question. From high school, um, I mean, I wish. Uh, no, I sold uh, reluctantly. I uh, my brother's guitar. So my little brother also played guitar. We um, kind of mm-hmm. shared a guitar, and and it, and it and basically ended up being his because I kind of switched to the drums. But then yeah. that that less it was a uh, studio Les Paul, like a blue one, like a really unusual blue looking one. Mm. Um, and and I essentially inherited that guitar. Um, 
because uh, he kind of went into college and wasn't doing music, and I was, you know, doing obviously fully into music at that point. Anyway, long story short, I, I, that guitar was used. It was pretty much used on the entire Fall Out Boy record I made, and, and I later sold it, um, which I regret <laughs> just for that, for no other <laughs> reason, that one reason, um, because huh. people have asked me about that. But um, I don't know if I have anything else from high or from grade school or high school. I don't know. I wish I did, but I don't think so. Uh, you know that that does happen. Uh, I'm now now that we're already talking about that. I, do you guys? I yeah, we we both do. Yeah, uh, no. Have care. our first first couple instruments there. Yeah, I've got them sitting in the other room. The, you know, not they weren't a, they weren't a Les Paul studio. They were like Epiphones and yeah. a Harmony. But yeah, I've still I've still got those kicking around. Mostly because they sat in my dad's basement for like 20 years, and then I, he just recently made me take them ah, back. So they're okay, sitting there now. <laughs> that. That makes sense. And Dave, you do too. You have like a bass well, from when you were a kid. Technically, technically, Henry has the second uh, version of my first bass. So I, I got a bass when I was 14 at a pawn shop. I sold it when I was in college. And then I was like, you know, I started working again, had some money. And I was like, I'm going to buy that bass back or like buy, an, you know, buy the exact same one. It was like an 80s Squire and um, nice. then I traded it to Mark from Blaine Fonda for a bicycle. So actually, oh, it's in amazing. it's in Mark and uh, Henry's practice space right now. So that's I'm great. sure I'm sure maybe <laughs> one day if I offered enough, I could get it back. But but I, I'm glad they're enjoying it right now. So that's cool, man. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funny. So when did obviously you know you, you're a drummer, but you your your profession is that of a, a mix engineer and producer. When did yeah. that sort of start happening for you? Was it something where you just were like in a band and decided to just be the person that recorded, or or was it a little more thoughtful and you decided to go to school and kind of go that route? Oh no, it was if anything less thoughtful, um, <laughs> <laughs> like most things in my life. Um, let's see. Uh, no, I think I feel like I can trace it back to. Um, when I, when I got my license at 16 and I started, um, I would drive around in my, my older brother's car, which had a cassette deck in it. Um, and, uh, and I would, I had like a bad religion. I keep calling them records, but cassette, you know? Um, mm, yeah. And like all, yeah, a bunch of bands. And basically that was the moment, the time where I just totally fell in love with driving around and listening to music in a car. It like, and and to this day, it's still, you know, in the top three of my favorite things to do. Um, and, and I think, I think, I know I got obsessed with it and I believe that that's when I got obsessed with recordings. Like, um, like the sonics of the whole thing kind of started like, you know, scratching, you know, hitting me on the head and I started scratching my head going like, how is this happening? Like what, you know, how can I make something sound like this or what's going on here? Um, yeah. And I got super, um, basically just really enamored with the, the, curiosity of the process i think um Mm -hmm. and the desire i wanted my band to sound like what was coming at me you know um right yeah yeah and and so from there um i started looking at at that point it was like you know magazines like it was like whatever recording magazines i could have to basically get any kind of information and i started kind of getting interested in asking people around who you know may or may not have known much but um and yeah and let's see um it kind of it kind of just kept going from there like the studio became my 
my focus, my interest. Um, and then, yeah, I was the guy in the band. Um, and I eventually like borrowed my friend's four track and, and I would try and make recordings of, um, you know, our band and things of that nature and mm-hmm. friends bands right. and all that. But I would say, so, so like later years of high school is where it switched over, uh, for me. Um, and then that carried on, um, after high school. So after high school, my, my dad really wanted me to go to like a, a regular college and I really did not want to go, um, to mm-hmm. a regular college. And, um, we landed on, uh, that I would go to the recording program at Columbia college. Um, and he, he was not excited about that in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> um, but at the very least it was like a college. Uh, yeah. And yeah. And so I was, I was delivering pizzas again, like a job I love dearly because I could drive around and listen to music in my car. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and and the place is in in Evanston. It's like uh, next to my hometown, and I'm still friends with the owner of the place today. I still, when I'm in town, I get pizzas from his place. It's a good place, Panino's. Uh, <laughs> shout out, yeah, to Lenny. Shout out, yeah. Um, but anyway, Dude, um, quick quick question. I know we're, we're don't want to jump around too much, but oh, yeah, yeah. since we're talking about the car thing so much, I'm curious. You know, today. How much of an impact does the the quote unquote car test have on the work that you do when you're when you're making a mix? Is that something that you still use to like actively inform decisions, or is it more uh, just kind of a uh, final cherry on top to to know that it sounds cool? Yeah, it's. I mean, no, it's a hundred percent involved in the process for me. Um, it, it's uh, at some point in time, I'll listen to basically anything I I work on um, in the car, unless the only exception might be if I'm like working on a record and I've gone through the first you know, a few mixes and, and confirm them in the car that they do what I want to do. And then I feel like I have that imprint in my, in my control room. Then I kind of move forward. Right. Um, but no, it's still, um, I love it. It's still important to me. It's been like a lifelong goal actually to, to get rid of it. Like I wish I, I didn't have to rely on it, but it, it still is always a helpful point of reference. Um, yeah, um, but it you know it's it's a thing you gotta you gotta go down there and drive around and listen and <laughs> uh, yeah and they you know they have those different plugins where you can sort of like virtually create that environment and I've tried a couple of them and there's just nothing it's not even so much about how things sound in the car too you you feel it and you get kind of like a more a little more spatial awareness of what's going on around you and in just a more real world scenario yeah and yeah I, I think no, there's like a right. there's a benchmark there right sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you but like there's a benchmark no, no, no. if you li- if you drive around listening to music all all the time and then you go in there with something you just made you're gonna at least have something to compare it to I'm sure yeah that's you know what I think you hit the nail on the head at least for where where I come from um, I would always say that to um, you know guys at the studio because you know that's exactly it the car is a place that I listen to 99% of what I'm listening to is finished music so I have a, a, a very distinct imprint in my head of what that is supposed to feel like in the studio it's the opposite, you know. Yeah. You know, maybe say ninety percent of what I'm listening to is music that's being worked on, and it's it's being built and constructed. Mm-hmm. And I try and get as much listening time as I can in the studio. But the reality is, there's no way that 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 can be flipped around. I mean, I wouldn't be doing it. I wouldn't be working on anything. <laughs> right. um, I, I I love sitting back and listening. But yeah, so it it really it it holds a certain um, you know level in your head of expectation. Perfect. Well, that was our little car tangent there. Uh, so let's take it back to your, your Columbia. Um, did you all immediately start working on projects or, or 
Was it a, was it a lot of learning before you really started getting your hands dirty? What was that like? Yeah, so um, it's kind of a, a an odd situation. So I, um, I again, I reluctantly kind of went to Columbia. Um, at the same time, I was super fortunate. The deal in in my family was that um, if we went to college, um, my dad would. Uh, pay for us to essentially have like a an apartment if 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 needed if there was no dorm available or whatever mm-hmm. um, and so uh, I took that um, I took that uh, money essentially and instead of renting an apartment um, I uh, I wanted a place that I could make music and so I found which is hard to do obviously and you know with noise oh, in, in Chicago so, yeah. yeah so I found a a single story office building that was divided in two halves. It was small. Um, it was two offices. And on one half was the guy who owned it, who had his office with his nine to five business. On the other half was, was the other office. And I, I figured, hell, I could rent this. It's not livable. Like, I'm not supposed to live there, but I could live right, there right. and I can make music after 5 p.m. every day and all weekend. And so wow, I'm going to yeah. do that. So, so I rented an office and I lived there. Uh, eventually, I got kicked out by the fire marshal. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think that's uh, zone. Owned properly, but yeah, I, I yeah, he he saw my George Foreman grill and some other uh, you know things that were obvious. <laughs> I was living there like a bed or a mattress, um, right? And uh, <laughs> but so I I was there. I was still delivering pizzas at the time, going to Columbia, and and I had my little recording set up there, and I was recording bands left and right, all of my friends' bands, um, and I was going down to Columbia, whatever it was, three four days a week uh, to class, and it got to a point where. I felt like I was um, I was having to uh, turn down or or not I, I couldn't I didn't have enough time to do the recordings I wanted to do with my friends' bands because I was going to school to learn how to record and I was like this is nonsense I'm I'm, I'm mm-hmm. already doing it and you know my ego kind of said screw school and so I literally just stopped going to school um, and I didn't tell my dad because if I told oh. him he he cut off my funding right um, and 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 that you know eventually like nine months down the line when he would ask for my report card and I didn't have a report card, uh, then he cut off my funding. And um, at that point in time, I really had to hustle to make sure I had enough recording work. But I kind of built up um, a whole thing with like bands that we were friends with. And I really did have, between that and the pizza delivering gig, I had enough to basically pay this office uh, rent <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and and eat. Um, you know, I mostly ate for free at the pizza place. But um, yeah, so... Uh, so that my, my Columbia situation was super short lived. I think I went for maybe, I don't know, three, four five weeks and that was it. And I was out <laughs> and then the yeah. rest, you know, um, uh, okay. I'll, I'll give the one tangent to that, which is, um, yeah. when, when I was, I remember when I decided to quit Columbia, I did feel extraordinarily guilty. I was in my car. I was, I had driven down that day and I was sitting in my car in a parking lot and I thought to myself, there's no way I can, I can quit without having something else going on and so I said okay it, I'll only quit if I can get an internship at a real recording studio and I went and I got the uh, Illinois Entertainer you know the the magazine there yeah, newspaper right. that, mm-hmm. yeah I had all the recording studios in the back and and I literally sat there and started calling one by one and um, and all of them turned me down at first but I continued that and I, I pursued uh, uh, one of them Gravity Studios because I kind of heard of it uh, for months and eventually I got an internship and so that was a big 
transition point for me was basically getting out of my own little office studio and into what was legitimately a real recording studio with a real console and a real tape machine. And I didn't have any idea how to use any of that stuff. (laughs) And yeah, and I definitely, that was a huge, um, it was a huge moment of, of kind of like, um, evolution for, you know, recording, learning recording for me. Yeah. Oh, Did sure, you, man. was it, were you already able to, were you, I mean, was it just the sort of like standard story where you run in and getting coffee or were you actually able to work on any sessions during that internship? Yeah, it was the beginning. Um, let's see the, uh, what was the, uh, my, my first thing was, was literally just getting coffee and I, it was my friend, Mike Zirko who turned out this guy later became my friend, Mike Zirko who ran smart studios in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was doing a promise ring session um, on my first day. Cool. Was, it was super cool. And and he was mixing it, and I was literally just watching, and he was doing the patch bay, and I couldn't even believe my eyes like as to what was going on in that patch bay because there was you know, you know, hundreds and hundreds of patch points. And um, and I kept seeing him go over there, and then I, the assistant, the proper assistant, was also throwing patches. And so I decided it, this is like the one like novel thing I think I've done in my like <laughs> life or internship, at least, where <laughs> I I went over to the patch bay on all the breaks, and I decided I was going to write down the entire thing on my pad of paper. And so throughout like the twelve hours of the day, I literally went over and I I wrote down, carbon copied the entire thing, which was you know the whole console, oh, all the outboard gear, everything, and I told myself, because I was on a weekly internship, once a week was how Gravity did it, that I would memorize the patch bay so that... It, oh my God. Yeah. And I made flashcards uh, for each row and I had my friends, we would go out to diners and I would have them test me and they would say, okay, wow. row row one, top row, what is it? And I'd be like, you know, uh, 1176 one, stay level, you know, whatever. And it took me a week, but I literally memorized it. I remember I showed up an hour early to Gravity, sat in my car and reviewed and... Um, <laughs> And That's and that ass, day, it was my second day, and uh, and Doug McBride, the owner, who's a, a good friend, um, I was on one of his sessions, and and the assistant went to go do something, and he asked for a patch, and and I was like, I know where this is, and I got up and I did it, and he looked at me in awe, like, what? How did you possibly know that? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, fucking Rain Man over here. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it all went downhill from there. That was like that was the you know, <laughs> the most extreme Dude, thing. I, I can't even imagine though the the dichotomy too be going from gravity with yeah just you know every every uh, amazing piece of outboard and then whatever you had i'm curious what did you have in your in your session practice studio or whatever you you know you were doing at the time was it was was it like a 001? What was Pro Tools around? What, was, what were you using in your studio at that yeah, point? Yeah, no, Pro Tools 001s maybe were just about to come out. I had um, I had just graduated from a, four, a Tascam 4-track to an ADAT. I had an 8-track ADAT machine um, cool. and, and a Mackie um, and a couple microphones that I think like um, – uh, what is it? Uh, the Alesis 3630 compressor. Um, mm-hmm. yep. We were talking about that, I think, last week or two weeks mm-hmm. ago. The, the first compressor that everybody had. It I feel yeah. like I heard you guys talk about that. Maybe it was Shirk. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, my God, I'm pretty sure that's the one I had. Um, and that was that was the extent of what I had. Yeah, it was it was pretty minimal. You know, a couple of 57s or whatever. You know, I think it probably... I think we're, we're around the same age. I think this might have been, might have been around when you and I first met. Um, uh-huh. I know that it was, 
I was I was either I, and you were telling your story about sort of leaving college and I it was very similar to me and this is when we would have met I was recording with John Alvin and Matt Schusler at Big Gold Studios. Oh, that's uh, after here in Chicago. So yeah, so that would that would have been a bit after then because they took that over from me. Yeah, so that after my right. after my office, I moved into Big Gold. What it was king size, and I took it from Ken. Yes, um, that's crazy though. So that's a that's probably about two thousand and what two or three three maybe. And yeah, exactly. Wow. That would have been two thousand three ish. Yes, been probably when that happened. I interned at Gravity so, so when I was there? Yeah. 19, so it was 1999. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, uh, mine was, yeah, so that, that happened a little earlier than all that. What was the transition then to get into you, you getting into Big Gold? How did that happen? Yep, yep. I was at the office. Um, the studio existed even though they kicked me out. Um, uh, to, you know, I had to find an apartment. I actually went and, yeah. and lived back in my dad's basement um, for a little bit. Um, but... Um, yeah, and I was at that studio for five years. Um, it was it was a great situation. Now, during all that time, I was making records um, at Gravity and at Smart Studios. Um, and then, really, the routine kind of was, um, especially in those days, it was we'll track um, the basic tracks at like a at a nice place, whether it's Smart or Gravity, um, and then we'll take it back to my place. And do overdubs because it's super affordable, and then we'll go yeah. to yeah, uh, to Gravity to mix it because in those days it was still mixing on a console, and you know Pro Tools mixing wasn't around really in you know 2001 or whatever. Um, and um, anyway, uh, point being, so that that worked really well for five years, and eventually that building, the office, the owner sold it to the restaurant next door, and they turned they bulldozed it and turned it into a parking lot. Um, and so uh, I had to move, and I was looking for studios, and I don't know how, but somehow somebody put me in touch with Ken Sluter, um, who, was, who had the king-size space, um, and he was moving to L.A., and somebody kind of mentioned, like, hey, Ken's moving. I knew of king-size. It was right around the corner from Gravity. Um, it had, mm-hmm. like, a big history of, like, a cool indie place, and I went and saw it, and the rent um, was uh, uh, totally affordable at the time, even though they... They raised it like on the first day by a lot. It was it was a super seedy situation. It wasn't there was no no lease or any of that shit. It was you know Chicago seedy kind of studio situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but yeah, I saw it and I was like, this place is perfect. Like this is a place. It's a it was like a built out studio. It came with the console. I mean, I had to buy you know buy it. But um, and so I uh, took out a small loan for the Neotech and. And I moved in there, um, and I started making all my records there, um, and it was great. It was such a such a cool place. It was a cool place. So at that point, who were you know were you were you making any sort of like uh, bigger records that that were getting released? Anything that that we might recognize? Were you, you know were you already working with Fall Out Boy? What was the sort of um, oh yeah there? Yeah, maybe yeah. Fall Out Boy had already been done. I did the demos for Fall Out Boy's second record under the cork tree um, at that studio. Um, I did um, this wasn't a big record, but it's one of my more favorites. A band called This Is Me Smiling. I did um, uh, yes. I did that record there. I did do that's right. I did the Hawthorne Heights record there, which ended up being like a platinum record. Um, and yeah. yeah 
Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. That was crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did a bunch of stuff there. I did. Um, I, 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 I mixed part of a less than Jake record there. Um, I did some songs that later went on a Juliana Theory record there, um, a Punchline record that came out on Feel by Ramen. Uh, yeah, I, I really was, it was at a time where I was basically back to back, like kind of booked with records uh, because of the su- success of Fall Out Boy. Um, I, was, I was pretty busy and, and kind of getting burnt out at the same time. But um, uh, yeah, I did a lot of stuff there. Were you um, were you predominantly just mixing, or were you were you tracking all these projects too? No, I, I I produced all of those. The only one in that that I just mentioned that I just mixed was the Less Than Jake record. Um, but no, I was that was an unusual thing for me at the time to be hired just to mix something. I I wanted okay. that. Um, I, I I remember thinking I wanted that, but um, but no, I, I was I was doing the whole thing, producing, engineering, and mixing. You know. Yeah, totally. Um, so <clears throat> you, you mentioned obviously passing Big Gold along, along over to these other dudes. What um, what sort of led to that? Were you just trying to, to work out of other studios? Did you want to move into another space? What happened there? Yeah, no, it was it was actually none of that. It was it was kind of a, an odd moment. So um, let's see. So I made that this is I met that band, uh, this band called This Is Me Smiling. And um, uh and I made their record and, and I really loved the band and I love the guys in the band and, um, you know, and they're, they're close friends of mine to this day. Um, and we totally regularly work together. I just did something with Dan last week and, and Matt last week. Um, and, um, anyway, uh, point being that they had a drummer, um, Mike Flumley, who's this awesome drummer who was in the band, the smoking popes. Um, and he did that and alkaline trio. Yeah. an alkaline trio. That's right. And he did destination failure, which we all loved. Um, and, but he was like 10 years older than the band. Um, so anyway, he came in to play drums in the band on the record, uh, but then wasn't around for the rest of it and was basically kind of disconnected from the band. Um, I think mainly just socially, he had stuff going on. I think he might've had a kid. Um, he had a wife, you know, and the rest of these guys were like, like 19, 20 years old and just kind of getting going. And so by the end of that record, they asked, um, they were kind of looking for a drummer and, and I was, uh, that was I was at the end of maybe like a two year run of doing records back to back, like kind of coming off of Fall Out Boy and and having bands come in uh, from out of town. Um, oh yeah, I did that as Tall as Lions record at that studio. I, I, I was really just I basically was burnt. Um, it was so much record making. I was so tired, and it seemed like there was this opportunity to to join. This is me smiling and be a band member and to kind of switch gears. Mm-hmm. And and I said um, and. They, they they were they you know they were open to the idea and and asked if I would join the band and I was super excited about it and so and I was kind of in a place where I felt like I could kind of say like I'm gonna stop producing for a minute and just be in a band and kind of see how that goes um, and so I I essentially said I'm I'm not gonna be producing anymore um, I started turning down records um, even from like labels that I had worked with. Um, and I wanted to focus on just, you know, playing, getting back into being a better drummer. Um, and then we had, you know, we started having like label interest and we started doing tours and stuff like that. So it Mm -hmm. seemed like it was going to really turn into something, um, uh, pretty real. And, and then, and it was funny. So at that point I was like, you know, I don't, there's no reason for me to have this studio. But ironically, Dan in the band was really getting into production. He that was kind of something right. he was interested in, and and I think he 
wanted um, to have a studio. He wanted to have a source of you know income from that, and so he basically said, "Can I take over it?" Um, and I th- I don't remember if he took over it with John Alvin or if they did it separately. But uh, you know, I, as far as I remember, you know, Dan came in and took over the space, which was funny because I was in his band um, and we still rehearsed there. <laughs> I, it didn't really make any sense, to be honest. None of this makes you know, any I sense. Can't, I can't remember because I don't, at that point, you know, I've since become friends with Dan, but I, I don't think I actually met Dan back then. It was just Dan, uh, John and, and Schusler uh, that were in there doing, making making records. And that was when I met you and actually also met Mike Flumley. And, and here I am, you mm. know, 18, 19, my super shitty band doing our like sort of first record w- with these guys in the studio. And then like yeah. the drummer from my favorite band walks in and i'm like that dude did fall out boy it was it was very it was very like a cool sort of like first studio experience for me we never even finished the record and the band was terrible but regardless it was, <laughs> i still i still have a lot of a lot of memories and photos from that from that like week or two we did in there that's awesome man i'd love to see those photos i love seeing photos because you know how you like you were you know it's before facebook so they're not like documented online and and yeah, right. yeah. and you you have a memory of what a studio that you worked in 15 years ago looks like and then i'll see a photo and be like oh god that's nothing what i thought it looked like <laughs> <You know? laughs> absolutely it's funny to even see cuz i mean we were obviously it was pro tools at that point but it's still just like a big yeah. crt monitor yeah. it's like man are we really that old like <laughs> it's like black and white fucking tube tvs out there it's so good man <laughs> Um, I'll send you those pictures for sure. Uh, so, okay, all right. Yeah. So you were playing drums and smiling. Then, you know, yeah. what was there a reason that you, you decided to get back into into your, your lifelong calling and making records? Yep. Yep. I think just because of exactly what you said, I went out, I went out on the road, I started playing and I, and I think, um, you know, I probably gave it a shot for, we, you know, we tried it for a year and the, and the reality was hitting was, was the, was obvious. The writing was on the wall for me that it just, it's not what I was meant to do. Like, um, I, I, I'm much more meant for the studio. And as much as I had hoped to be a band uh, guy and, and kind of live that life, um, it just, it just doesn't fit my personality. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it just wasn't like, it, it just wasn't a good fit. And, um, and so maybe after a year or so I said, okay, I'm, I'm gonna go, go back to the studio and, um, and a, a really good friend of mine, um, ended up playing drums for this is me smiling, who is a much better drummer than me. And, and, and that band deserved that and needed that. Um, mm-hmm. and shout out to Mr. Adam Coldhouse, that's uh, right. himself. Yeah. Yeah. He's fantastic. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So good. And, and, and I, you know, and there's more, you know, to that whole thing where, where we were going to go on. They, they eventually signed to Sony Records and, and we were set to go make a, a record and, and all that kind of fell apart the last second. Actually, when Rick Rubin took over Sony Records, um, it's kind of a mess. But I went back to producing and and again, I think I got like um, I caught like a lucky out of the gate start where literally the first thing. I recorded after like a few year break was Hey There Delilah. Um, it was my first oh, session. Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, has that, that been the biggest, has that been the biggest song of your career then at this, uh, to, to this date? Yeah, definitely. And I was, that was confirmed yesterday. I did an interview with somebody who was a, a billboard writer and he, and he seemed to kind of know the statistics on it and some other things. And he goes, that was, um, he mentioned all the bands of kind of that era in that certain scene. And he said that was the long and away the only, he said it was the only number one billboard, um, song of even like, you know, bands, their fellow like peers, like Panic at the Disco and Fall Out Boy and, and mm-hmm. those, those types of bands. Um, 
But so, but yeah, for me, long and away, that's the the biggest uh, commercial wow. success. Did, did you already know the plain white tees folks, or was that sort of like an arrangement through a label kind of deal? Nope, I knew them. Yeah, I knew them. Um, we were all kind of part of the same, you know, circle of, of friends and bands. Um, I had probably hung out with Tom, the the singer and songwriter, mm-hmm. a few times. We weren't close. I knew the drummer, Damar, well. He was in a band, another band that I uh, made a record for. Uh, actually, the first record I'd ever made on a on a record label. This is before Fall Out Boy, a band called Knockout. Um, and um, so I did know them, um, uh, yeah, pretty well. Uh, but it was, the, it was the, the owner of the label that called me and asked me to do it. It wasn't the band. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course we, you know, got together and, and figured it out. Fun, fun fact. My sister went to high school with Delilah. No way. Delilah D. Crescenzo is her oh. name. Yeah. Oh, um, uh, and, and that's a real thing. Wait, that's amazing. And is she, where, where's that high school? Uh, queen of peace. It's on the South side. Oh uh, my God. In Chicago. Yeah. Dude, that's pretty, that's pretty funny, man. What a small world. I know. Yeah. I, I remember opening for plain white tees when I was probably like 14 or 15 at a, at a coffee house. And I still remember specifically thinking that they were super legit because they had two bamps. I was like, Oh man, those dudes have two bamps. Like they're like, they're the real deal. Like I've got to, I got to take them seriously. That's, That's awesome. what gives it away. I love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was a fucking, I was a gear nerd even, even then before I knew it. Oh, I like that. Um, do so what was, I mean, so you, do you, you actually, you, you recorded that, did the whole thing. Uh, you weren't, you weren't just, doing the mixing at that point um yes and no um so delilah um is um uh, kind of somewhat complicated um i did without going way too deep into it um so delilah was has had three releases before it became um a a a number one song Mm. yeah so okay so Delilah was already recorded um, and released on a record um, a couple years before by somebody else. And and I got a phone call from Bob, the owner of Fearless Records, their label, and said, can you produce um, Can you produce this song, Hey There, Delilah? But I want you to like, we have the song, I want you to do like a full production on it. Um, and so I said, sure. And I listened to the song and I, you know, I spent a couple days and I thought to myself naturally, like, okay, what are we going to do? We're going to add drums, bass, and you know, the whole, the whole thing. And, and it kind of, uh, over a couple of days time, I kind of kept going back to the song and thinking about that and it didn't sit right with me. And then I kind of remember thinking, um, I don't know if that makes any sense. Let's see what Tom says. But in my head, I'm thinking more just kind of a string thing in the background. Um, yeah. And and, it, and I called Tom and we had the conversation and we were both kind of laughing because he I mentioned my train of thought and he goes, I had the exact same train of thought. And he goes, I, you know, put the band in there. And nah, that seems not like it's not going to work. Let's do kind of a Beatles string thing. And, and so mm-hmm. we said, OK, that's that's the plan. So we went into the studio and we did it and I hired um, a friend of mine who had played on a bunch of other records I had made, including the Smiling record. This guy, Eric Remschneider, who's a cello player in Chicago, and he's, he's, he's known for, he did the strings for uh, Tonight Tonight on the Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. And um, real credible, obviously um, successful guy. And so Tom and him together came up with the arrangement and we did the strings Um and, and I mixed it and it got released. And without going too deep into this, that was released on an EP by Fearless Records to fulfill their indie label deal. Um, and it sold probably 30,000 records or whatever it was meant to sell at that time. This is like in 2004 or 2005. Um, mm-hmm. and, 
And then fast forward um, to 2007, the band went on to make their major label record with another producer, a huge budget record, and um, and they released the first single, to my knowledge, and it didn't do nearly as well as they had hoped. And somebody at the label apparently kind of started getting nervous, thinking they might not have another strong follow-up single. But he had the idea of, he, he said, well, I think this Hey There Delilah thing you guys did a few years ago is a, is a hit song. We should reprint the record, tack it onto the record, and push that to radio. Um, and and I didn't know any of this was going on, of course, at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, so they did that, and you know, in that summer it became a hit song. But I don't really listen to the radio, and I had my head buried in between a set of speakers in a studio all summer long. So <laughs> I had no idea this thing was on the radio and was a hit. And it just so happened on July Fourth, I went up to Summerfest with "This Is Me Smiling," and they were sharing the stage uh, with the Plain White Tees. And so I bumped into the band, and the drummer came up to me and he goes, "Hey, man!" He goes, "Congratulations, you got yourself another cold record." And I was like, "What are you talking about, Tamar?" And he goes, Delilah, man. He goes, that shit went gold. And, and I was <laughs> like, hey, their Delilah EP went gold? Like, that doesn't make any sense. He's like, no, no, no. We, we, we put it on our new record and it went gold. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And, and he goes, I was like, he go, he's like, he's like, I think so. And I was like, Damar, and Damar's kind of like a funny clown type of guy. I mean, he's a great guy, but he's a jokester. And so I was like, yeah, Damar doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And, <laughs> and so I called my manager that day and I left a message and I just said, do you know anything about this Hayler Delilah song we did three years ago? And apparently it's a hit song or whatever. And, and later that night I went to a party with some friends of mine and I, I asked him, I go, do you guys know anything about this song? And 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 they go, my friend, my best friend goes, O'Keefe, where have you been? That's the things on the fucking radio all day long. And, <laughs> yeah. and I was like, I think I might have done that. And we left the radio on. Sure enough, it came on. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's the thing I did. <laughs> and it worked on, you know. And, and yeah, so it's kind of a crazy story how it had three basically releases. But um, that is a crazy story. Holy shit. Well, yeah. I guess you can never give up uh, on an original mix then if, uh, if it feels good. And it's still going to be good in the future. Yeah, and and it's often like a you know I feel like it's it's an interesting example that I will mention to bands at times where you know a band thinks that maybe they have a song like say they they're working on a song today and and they love it and they're nervous about releasing it into the wild because they think it's going to stop any chances of a label coming along or something happening of you know some big sense and in turning it into a hit and you know I kind of always mention this because it's like look man this this got released. 30,000 people bought it and it's still it didn't make any difference in the world from it becoming a hit three years later it's like the world's a big place you know mm-hmm. um, so yep. you know releasing your music I don't with the not releasing your music because you think it's going to kill some future opportunity is probably not a thing but um, uh, you know I could be wrong but that's an example of hey, if it that's you know, some real world advice right there, yeah right that's there, good real shit. examples of shit that yeah. went down yeah yeah so I know you've also uh worked with our boy dave here uh That's what right. dave what, what yeah. what's uh what was the what, what was the, the blaine fonda relationship what, what did you guys do together yeah i think we we recorded um i'm trying to think when we first met sean i i know we recorded we recorded ivy labs with john alvin and then i can't remember if we brought sean in to mix that ep it was like a seven song thing that we did um but we we definitely had you mix our full-length record that we did at gravity studios um shortly after that probably two two or three years after that um and then we man we did a bunch of stuff we did that we did a single over at water dog studios i remember um 
for a, for a song that we kind of put together. And then, uh, and then I know we did a four song EP that we had you actually, I think, I believe you tracked and mixed that. And, um, unfortunately I don't think we ever uploaded that one. I think we kind of disbanded, uh, shortly after that. So maybe one day we'll get that up there and out to the people. Dude, send it over. I want to hear that shit. It's fucking awesome. It's probably my favorite thing. It's four songs. It's probably my favorite thing we ever did. It's great. Dude. Isn't that how it always works though? You always make the best thing at the end and then break up and don't release yeah. it. Or yeah, and it was like the band yeah. was the best it ever was. We had Austin playing drums, we had Dan Lou on guitar, and it was just like honestly, and, and like we we recorded uh instrumentally live with Mark doing a scratch track, and I think we even kept some of the scratch tracks. The whole thing was uh it kind of just came together really, really quick. So maybe we'll get that out there. We gotta talk to Mark and see if someone's got the uh got the masters for that. You you should and and to be fair, just to give credit where it's due, I'm I'm ninety nine actually I'm one hundred percent sure that 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 thing you're talking about, I Greg Pansiera did, uh, who's a good friend of mine. Yes, um, you're right. Because ah. yeah, you did it at my old studio. Um, you're right. I don't I don't want to take credit uh, away from Greg because Greg's phenomenal and and I Absolutely, did hear man. some of that and it was so good and you should definitely release it. It's so good and you know what? Those were hazy days. I think back then maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe part <laughs> of the Aren't reason we we broke up. Yeah, but uh, yeah, those were those were foggy ones. That's right. It was at your studio. There was a studio in the down by Canalport, down there or something that that we worked out of that was pretty John, cool. yeah johnny k's old building yeah oh very cool. dave you've definitely got to send me that also because uh gregor's is playing bass in the project with me and mark right now so awesome. it's all coming full circle oh right. hell yeah great guy that That's guy awesome. small world isn't it hell yeah well um so i wanted so obviously we've touched on some of your some of your big stuff obviously hey there delilah and and, and frankly one of my all-time favorite records take this to your grave still i think is fucking radical and, and kind of like to me the sort of pinnacle of everything that happened around that time like i always just come back to that record um awesome. I, i'm curious like even going back to back then or or things that you've learned up through now you know are there any <clears throat> any sort of specific processes or or like chains of of hardware or software plugins that you that you find yourself going to every single time you're either tracking something or or more specifically i guess mixing something Hmm. yeah that's a that's a good question um yeah um there are uh let's see i obviously for mixing it'll be different than tracking and in these sure these days mixing is probably 80 percent of my workflow um Mm -hmm. yeah so maybe i can touch on that um because tracking will change on the depending on the studio that I'm in, um, and um, and like what they have available. But um, although, okay, I'll 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 note one thing, and I remember Shirk kind of mentioning this, I think, in his his podcast with you guys. Um, if I go to a room, um, so I was just at a studio called the Sonic Ranch, um, which is a, a really cool studio in El Paso. Um, the photos looked absolutely stunning. Holy crap! Yeah, it's I gorgeous. Check that room out. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. Um, and uh, and they, there's, I think, seven recording studios there, and they can house up to, like, 40 people or something unreal. Wow. It's, it's wild. Um, yeah, but, um, you know, each of those rooms has a beautiful, brilliant, you know, console of, you know, vintage Neve, um, you know, vintage API, or, you know, obviously something like Shirk Studio, um, where it's got uh, the sphere. Um for tracking, when I when I go into rooms like that often, and at, at these rooms, they will have a lot of like the room I was in was an API room, and, and they you know they probably had a dozen Neve modules, you know, as outboard you know pre's. Mm-hmm. But honestly, and, and maybe my old um, instinct or inclination would have been like, okay, let's put the Neves on the 
you know, kick and snare and, you know, bass or whatever. And, and then we'll use the API for like for the rest or whatever. But man, I, I don't ever do that anymore. I, as a routine, I pretty much stick to the console. I, I would much prefer okay. to have a uniform um, sound for whatever that may or may not do. And in, in, at least in my mind, I believe it does something to have some consistency. Um, and if, if for nothing else, it makes me just think back to like, um, records that I love that were made 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And obviously that's the only option they had. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I, I would much prefer to have, um, one kind of signal path, um, one console or whatever for a project. If, possible it's not always possible <laughs> um very cool what about um anything uh, and this might be a little more tactical but is there anything for mixing similarly where it's like okay you you always do this the same no matter what the program material is and what are what you're trying to accomplish is there something that you find yourself doing every time you're you're putting a mix together yeah um other than organization i mean I organize it the same every time um yeah like, yeah uh it comes back at me like the same um, sonically, uh, you know, and other than gain staging and things of that nature. Um, yeah, I noticed that. I was watching you did a you did nail the mix on. Right. I think it was a Fall Out Boy um, newer record, maybe that last EP. And you you were talking. And I noticed that I was watching part of it. I think it was you're you mixing uh, mixing Patrick's vocals, and you and you were using a trim plugin. Um, more uh, inserted in different places in the path more regularly than I'm, I'm probably used to seeing. Mm-hmm. Why would you use like a specific trim gain plugin rather than just, uh, you know, altering the input output gain on the next plugin that comes in the chain? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so what I found mixing, so I mix in the box other than um, my two bus hits analog processing uh, most times. Um, and, um, what I found is that if I mix like I mix on a console with uh, faders up, how I like them, um, kind mm-hmm. of in their, in their sweet spot, um, and, and I do the, all the processing I like, that by the time I hit the mix bus, it is lit up. Um, and unlike a console, like if I do that on a console, the mix bus is usually work. It's kind of meant to be. Um, and I don't, I've talked to other friends about this, and, and I, I would say, I think all of them have experienced the same thing, which at least makes me feel like I'm not totally fucking up. Um, and <laughs> because that's very possible, but like, um, but yeah, so, uh, I wanted to find a way to do that. And I didn't, I, I did some tests with just literally just bringing a master fader way down. That's going to hit my, uh, two bus processing. And, and I didn't, I noticed some artifacts there. I, I felt like it was still hitting that. Mm. And, and I even did like a, some scientific, I mean, some real bullshit scientific test, but like, you know, my version of a scientific test, which was, you know, you can send like a sine wave and you can, you can run it, you can push it until the, you know, everything is hitting red and then you can record it and you can look at what that sine wave then looks like um, as opposed, and you could pull the, the fader down to, to remove the level as opposed to putting a trim plug in and, and you can look at, is there a difference in that sine wave? Meaning is one getting distorted, even though it doesn't look like it's getting distorted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did notice actually there was a distortion by just pulling the fader down, um, the, ma- oh. the the master bus fader, as opposed to right. trimming it down. And then I, I noticed the best case scenario was actually just not, just hitting it in a healthy way. And so you have to basically retroactively, you have to gain stage everything on its way in, um, in a, in, a, in an effective way. You got to have that come down. And so 
you know, if you were not to do any trim plugins across tracks, what that meant for my mixes was that in order to hit the two bus right, my faders were really low, like way down low. Mm-hmm. And the resolution on a fader sucks down there. And, you know, you make yeah. a, a little move and it makes a big move. And when you're up top, it's not that way. It's, it's mm-hmm. the way it's intended to be. So I hate mm-hmm. my faders being low. And so my solution was to put trim plugins last in the chain of every track and bring it down whatever it needs to be. And for me, it usually ends up being, I think, like 12 dB or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I don't do it with a plugin is because if I was to bring, let's say, the output of an SSL EQ plugin down on a, on a kick drum, 12 dB, uh, and then later I decided that um, after that EQ, I wanted to add a compressor. Well, now I'm having to jack my compressor way up yeah, the threshold totally. to even engage the compressor because there's 12 dB less hitting it. So I, I found I had to do it at the end. Um, and I tried to do some tests of like, does the trim plugin like add sound? Man, from whatever yeah, right. I can tell, I can't hear any difference. But like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it's my only solution to basically having it all kind of work the way I, I prefer for it to work. Um, if you find any better solutions, I'm all ears because um, I hate having to add trim plugins to every track on my mix. <laughs> it's, it's just annoying. <laughs> well, it just feels like a common issue that I'm surprised Pro Tools and all the other DAWs don't have just a simpler solution than that than than having to put another instance of a plugin in. Yep, hundred uh, percent. Because it, yeah, it's it's real. And 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 you and you, when you research like even UAD plugins, any of them, they're all designed to have a certain amount of level hitting them. And that's something we've talked about before too. The and it's usually between that like minus eighteen, minus twelve, maybe up to minus six range. And and when you start going above that, then they they distort in a not pleasing not analog sounding way it just yeah. it does that digital artifacty thing which just, just sounds like poop so yeah that's right that. uh, pro tools should i mean look consoles have line trims i know they're used in slightly different ways yeah. but um but pro tools should in my opinion it should have a a line trim at the bottom of every channel after all your stuff so that literally it just it fixes that and then you can you can uniformly do it across all you know 50 channels you have it in one in one swoop, you know, as opposed and you can to, kind of see where it is rather than having to open up each plugin and see where the trim is sitting. That's right. I think, I think so. I'm, I'm now that you say, I can't believe they don't have that. Um, uh, yeah, but that, that's why I weird. Yes. Yeah, so I guess that's one, you know, kind of utility thing I do on every mix. Oh, that's, that's, that's good stuff right there. I, you mentioned your two bus. What do you, what do you, do you have the same, uh, outboard two bus setup that you run all of your mixes through? I have the same hardware that I use on yeah. everything, and then the and then there's software involved too that that changes. Um, but the yeah, the hardware are, it's just two units. Um, it's a in their first in the chain um, before any other uh, plug-in processing. So the first one is a uh, a box by a company called Louder Than Liftoff. It's called a Silver Bullet. Um, it's um, it's a it's a cool box. It, it's basically um, it's essentially well, to the best of my knowledge, it's it's supposed to emulate um, like the the mix bus line amp section of an API console and an Eve console, and so you can essentially drive into either of those. To it's kind of trying to get some analog like saturation and warmth and glue. Mm-hmm. You can drive both of those um, stages, and you can combine them in either order you want, um, which is super cool. And then it has some tone, um, some basic tone capabilities. It's got a um, what is it I'm looking at? It's got a, a tight button, which I think kind of does the, you know, rolls off like the really, really low stuff. that can Like get a high pass or something. Yeah, probably. I don't know where, but my guess is at, you know, 25 or 30 hertz. But um, 
and then it's got a, a tone um, a tone knob that you can do a high and low shelf EQ that sound amazing to my ears. Um, and you have two settings on those, like air setting or um, just like presence. Um, and then it's got a vintage setting that emulates, I think, uh, I don't know. You have to ask these guys. I mean, I don't want to like, you know, yeah, say sure. something wrong. But anyway, the thing's cool. It goes first. Yeah. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> it's a cool uh, box. <laughs> when, you, when you take it out, the mix sounds not as good to me. So I leave it in. Um, Leave yeah. it in. And then after that, it, it hits a dramatic audio obsidian uh, compressor, um, which to my knowledge is basically like a, it's kind of like a more hi-fi, full, uh, broad range um, SSL style bus compressor. Got it. Um, and and then it goes back in and, and hits um, software, which will change. But, but yeah, I, I pretty much always hit those um, no matter what, I would say. Are you doing any um, external summing or, or um, like stem mixing before that, or, or is all the uh, is all the summing happening in Pro Tools? It's all in Pro Tools. Yep, it all hits that. Cool. Throwing away my summing box. Uh, next. No, I've got a D box. You, you can, I really you can like, throw it away in my trash can. Exactly right. Uh, I'm curious. So another thing that I noticed while I was watching your nail the mix um, is. Some people have very firm feelings about this, and and some people don't. I'm curious your stance. I noticed that, like again, going back to the um, Patrick Stump vocals, mm. uh, the idea of mixing soloed versus in context. With I know you're, I noticed that you're bringing drums back in a lot. How do you how do you approach that? Do you are, do you spend a lot of time trying to nail the tone to something soloed and then make it fit within the band, or are you spending time with the full mix happening and then trying to get the tones that way? Right. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I try not to. I try to solo as little as possible. Um, okay. Uh, having said that, it it doesn't mean it doesn't happen because it does, and it probably happens more than I I would like to admit. But um, yeah, especially so in the beginning, um, I'm definitely I'm putting everything up, not in solo, just to get a feel for what's going on. And mm-hmm. um, and then and usually my first goal is if I get a rough mix, which I try and get. Um, Unless the rough mix is really rough, which happens often, to be honest. Um, but, uh, but sometimes rough mixes are great. Uh, and unless it's really rough, my first goal is to basically get my mix under my system to kind of get in the world of the rough mix. So I'm at least wherever they left off. Um, okay. Yeah, because it doesn't, because, you know, whatever I'm getting doesn't necessarily mean when I put it up, it's going to. It's going to be where they're at. Um, it could totally be different um, depending on if they use a different DAW or had different plugins or you name it. Of course. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to get there, and I, I really don't do soloing there unless I'm trying to figure out what's what. But um, And then, d- then I'll often go into solo, and I use solo for like – um, if I like, um, if I feel the need to like really wrestle with tones to kind of get them, um, you know, from one to 10, basically, like if they got to go a long way, um, then I will often go in solo, uh, to kind of do big, broad, like strokes and try and get the, you know, the bulk of the tones like happening the way I know they kind of, um, the way that I know that I like to have them come back at me out of my speakers and then I'll put it all back together, um, and, and then I try and do as little soloing as I can from there. But if I do solo, I tend to do it in instrument groups. And I, I have my... Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I have my, my console like set up on these like VCAs that kind of group things for me. Um, and so 
I'll almost never just like solo vocals by themselves. I'll at least do it with like, like probably like I did in that video, like with drums. Like I want some kind of a reference, um, but I might not want everything in because it might kind of, it might really cloud what I'm trying to figure out in the vocal um, if I put it all in. But I'll, you know, it's usually yeah. drums, bass, um, and vocals. I'll I'll have one of those things in while working on something else for context. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned. Um, uh, keeping reference I'm, I'm i'm i would like to know uh, even taking it further to like reference material how often are you going back and forth to to other mixes that either you've done or others have done to compare with the, the music that you're mixing now yeah um uh, pretty regularly i'm I, I i get lost if i don't do that i find um and uh so i have um you know if the artist suggests it's man references are so tricky because it, if the artist I would say more than half the time when somebody suggests like um, a reference, like they say, we've been, we like this record. I'll put it mm -hmm. up and I'll listen to theirs and I'll go, well, these have nothing to do with each other. Like, <laughs> what, what is going on? And, and to my ears, that's the result. But, but to their ears, then I later learn it's like, oh, they like the melody or they like the song or, uh, or, yeah, or right. they like the drum beat or, or, mm -hmm. you know, but, but in context of a mix, um, yeah, I've had to learn to kind of figure out, and I'll ask, you know, what what it is that they uh, that they like, um, and so I have to be careful referencing what other people send me as references to not try and actually really head in a sonic direction because often that's not what they're suggesting. I think um, it's a it's kind of a game, um, and then I have my own references that I really just have up there for like I know um, this this song is 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 the darkest I would ever want to go. And this song is uh, the brightest sure. I would ever want to go. Um, and this song is, is, has a vocal that I think is actually too loud. So it like, mm -hmm. it's almost like, like boundaries. Um, and, um, and so I use those to try and hone in. Um, yeah. But, but I also ask, it, it makes me think I, I got this, this tip from, um, a producer who I love, uh, John Congleton. Um, and I'm, and I'm not sure if you guys know him. Um, in name, I'm sure I've heard music, but I couldn't name anything off the top of my head. He's kind of done like e every other of the coolest like indie uh, like records in the last ten years. He's he's mm -hmm. he's fantastic. He's an LA guy, but um, he 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 mentioned something in an interview, and I was like, holy shit, that's amazing! I'm stealing that. And uh, and so I will often do this now with a band, which is when. So again, this is John's uh, idea. At least I got it from him. But um, when a band sends me. Um, a record to mix and I'm just mixing and uh, and they have roughs I I will start by asking okay if um, on a scale of 1 to 10 um, uh, if 1 is uh, basically uh, taking your rough mix and just sonically you know making it a little bit nicer um, uh, or 10 is totally reinventing the rough mix you gave me what are mm. you expecting <laughs> what do you want back? oh smart sure yeah. Yeah, that's and, very smart. And I was like, that's so great because I will obviously get hit with things where sometimes I'll go to town and people are like, no, 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 we just wanted it to be like a little clearer. And and then vice versa, where they're like, why is this nothing changed? Like, this right. just sounds a little better. Like, where's the rest? Um, and so. I'll, yeah, that's uh, managing, managing expectations out front. So then there's no real surprises when you deliver what you see as a final project. Yeah, it's really helpful because as a mixer, it's the worst to go into a project 
and not know. And then you're kind of get your sec, you start to second guess everything. And it's like, that's not a fun way to mix a record. And it's not, I it never for me gives a result that's inspiring. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, sort of, sort of on the similar, similar tack. Um, one one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and it, and I know it can be a, a sort of a touchy subject with with some people is layering samples. Um, is that something that that you do much of that you find yourself doing? And if so, is it something that you you know do you ask for permission if it's okay to layer things in? Like, how do you kind of approach that whole world? Um, I don't ask. Uh, I, I I don't ask for permission. Maybe I should. Um, but what <laughs> I, <laughs> what I found it so two things. Um, one is I'm, I'm fortunate I have an amazing um, remote assistant, uh, Nick, who um, he, he gets all my mixes before they come to me. And so um, so he organizes everything. So it kind of shows up mm-hmm. um, and it's easier for me to basically just get into mixing. But he also does all of uh, he adds triggers um, to kick, snare and toms in case I need them for every mix. And it's mm, it is yeah. his meticulous work. He's very good at it. Um, and I kind of often tell people it's like, you know, I do have to pay him something, but, um, you know, it's like, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably a reasonably priced mixer, but I'm a really expensive drum layer, you know, like, um, you, you, like it's better that I pay him a little bit and, and have him do it. And then in my, my time and my energies, you know, focus on your mix. But, yeah. um, mm-hmm. but anyway, point being that when the mixes come back um, to me, I always have that option um, in case it, I feel that it needs to be in there. My 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 personal preference is to lean on them um, the least amount because I just that's what my ear prefers to hear. Um, having said that, uh, man, there's you know there are a lot of records today that the recording is far less than what you would hope for, or the performances and adding samples in goes a long way and um Mm -hmm. and and honestly more often than not um i'll send it to a band and i'll do what i think with the samples and um and usually the response is like oh man like the drum like these drums sound so good man my snare like like what snare did i use again it sounds amazing and i'm kind of like yeah okay (laughs) yeah like i don't know about that but like um yeah and so i don't uh, honestly it's an art and I'm not, uh, I'm yeah. constantly trying to get better at it. Like every single day I'm trying to figure it out a better way to marry those. But it, thankfully it's been a minute since I've had somebody come back and be like, we're hearing too much like sample or it's like, not sure. a, it doesn't seem to be thankfully a topic. Um, often if anything, the topic is uh, actually, I just did a record and it was, they sound too real. I want them to be more synthetic. And he literally gave mm. me a record. He goes, this was done in BFD. I want it to sound like that. I was like, Oh, okay. yeah. Um, and, and that was kind of shocking to me. I didn't, I always think that they're going to go the opposite way, but, um, yeah. So if anything, I think they're looking for maybe a little more of that. Um, well, do you, do you find, have you, is it situations where it is strictly a layer or do you ever find yourself just like whole cloth replacing things? I hate to whole cloth replace it. I hate, hate, hate that. It's, it always feels and sounds wrong to my ear as as a drummer. It's, it feels so weird. If I have to do that, then I really hope to get a lot of information out of the overheads in the rooms, um, assuming mm-hmm. I can. Um, I personally just don't like it. Just sounds weird to me. Um, yeah, so I'm 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 layering. Like, uh, and okay. it usually comes down. It's easier to get away with layering for me a, um, a or totally replacing a kick drum. Actually, it, 
in order of easiest for me, it's the toms first, um, assuming there's not like an intricate tom part. That's very difficult. Yeah, because those are a lot of times those are gated anyway, so it's kind of an easier thing it, to, to, to switch out. Yeah, it's more of a one-shot thing. It's obviously you're only hearing it now and then, so it's not leaving a static imprint on your brain as a listener. Um, totally. And, and then I would say kick is maybe the next easiest to get away with because you can always kind of push a kick under a mix if you need to. Um, mm-hmm and feel it more than hear it. And then um, a snare is often harder, you know, unless it's really just a two, four, you know, clean snare hit kind of vibe. Um, any kind of intricacies get, get tricky. So, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a thing, it's an art and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm constantly playing with it. But on the other side of that, I'll say that, you know, um, in terms of modern records, and I, I often mix a, a gamut of things from like totally indie, you know, folky side to like super slicked out stuff. And, um, and, but a lot of the mod, most modern rock bands or bands or whatever, you know, almost no records today in, in those genres are just real drums. And so I think the expectation from the listeners has changed, um, you know, from, ah, right. and, yeah. and I think their ears are molding uh, farther than mine for sure of expectation. And so it's more based on that, you know, um, interesting than my taste cool yeah that makes perfect sense um well i mean we've already mentioned some of the sort of really big things that you've worked on in the past fallout boy and hey there delilah hawthorne heights these big sellers is there anything that you feel like um as as an engineer and producer that you've worked on that maybe uh some of our listeners haven't heard before that you think would be like an awesome thing to direct them to to go check out stuff that you you've done and you're really proud of sure yeah um yeah, let's see. Um, you know, in the last couple of years, um, some records I've mixed I really like a lot. Um, one was, one came out maybe like last year, um, and it's a Chicago band. Do you guys know the AM Taxi guys or that band? Yeah. Yeah. Adam Cryer uh, and uh, some of the guys from Lucky Boys, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. Adam Cryer. Um, he went yeah. to my high school. That kid was an amazing guitar player already in high school, so it's cool to see him still out there doing it. Yeah, Jay, um, Jason, the bass player, and Chris, the drummer, I believe. But, they're, man, they're so good. I, I, I love their band. I, I just truly love their stuff. It's like they – Adam is a phenomenal – they're all great writers. I, I think Adam – I think he does the bulk of the writing. I might be wrong. But, um, anyway, um, I love their writing, and their style is just like um, – it, they just they get it they hit the nail on the head with like stylistically and with their execution it's like a raw kind of like you know it's definitely influenced by old like you know early like um punk rock you know raw punk rock like going you know early 80s oh, badass kind of, like late 70s kind of stuff and and they recorded a lot of the record they rented a warehouse and they literally just brought microphones into a warehouse and, oh nice and recorded it and there's bleed everywhere and um uh I, I mixed that and I I loved it. Um, so I, yeah, I I would um, suggest that to anybody um, that likes that kind of thing. Um, sure. It, yeah, it was a fun one. Let's see. Um, yeah, what else? There's another like Chicago thing I've been working on um, for geez, like a year or two. It's a long process, but um, it's Matt Walker, um, who's the you know he's he's known for being the drummer. He played with a special drummer and yeah, pumpkins and Morrissey and all kinds of really cool projects. That's right. Yeah. He's phenomenal. And, you know, and, um, he's a Chicago guy and I've been doing stuff with him for a long time and he's got his solo project called of a thousand faces. 
and and I yeah, just, dude, that new song is so good. Isn't it so good? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I mix that. Um, I, I've been mixing that whole record, um, and it's always fun because you know every song is a different singer, uh, and they're 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 his friends or people he's worked with in the past, and he's got some pretty amazing ones coming up that I I, I can't mention because I know he's kind of. Uh, mention it but like they yeah. were very exciting for me to do and we have a couple coming up that are super exciting um but i you know i, I usually have one of those tracks in my lap every couple of months and um uh, one of them that's released is um is it uh, jimmy necco from from ours that band ours um he's such a good singer all of them are great singers um yeah so it's fun because everyone is just kind of a different animal um and um it's, yeah it's really interesting yeah so it's partially released so you, um that's out there and that's a fun yeah there's a there, he's there was a video that he put out he put out maybe a week or two or maybe three weeks ago who knows at this point mm-hmm. time is a flat circle but the, the the what i was blown away it's it it definitely wasn't what i was expecting um coming into it and it, it's really badass you know that reminds me too i i met him a long time ago but i don't, I don't really like know matt well or anything but we definitely got to get him on the show because he would be he'll be a great guest for oh, this, this year pod you definitely do and if you need me to to introduce i'm 100 down he yeah he'd be perfect Awesome. Well, we sort of already glossed over this uh, at the top here, um, probably even before we started recording, but you no longer live in Chicago. You're down in Texas, but um, and, and you're a busy, in-demand person, but should any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, uh, maybe work to, together in the future, what would be the best way to for them to get in contact with you? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I'm I, first of all, I, um, I'm always, my door is always open, uh, especially for mixing, you know, again, m- mostly what I'm doing, but um, yeah. Yeah. I have. Let's see. I do have a website. Uh, I think it's <laughs> seanokeefeproducer.com. I'm pretty sure. Can confirm that is what it is. Okay. I've been there. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> that's probably the easiest way. I think there's an email on okay. there. You know, there's an Instagram thing on there too. But um, yeah, email. Any, you know, hit me up. Um, awesome, dude. Sean, thank you so yeah, much you're the for man, joining dude. us, man. Thank that you. was awesome i learned a lot uh got some cool stories to hear um got to reminisce a little bit about the past so i mean i couldn't have asked for anything more man you guys it's my pleasure seriously i, I really appreciate you having me on here i, I could talk to you guys for like days <laughs> well yeah, we will definitely have to have you back at some point in the future then maybe you know maybe once uh once the world stops shitting all over itself we can uh get you back up to <laughs> chicago you know what you know what we should do because we've got an open invitation from our good buddy steven shirk at his studio we should do like a little uh oh. a little shirk studio round table oh, situation at some sick, point, uh, yes. once, once we can do that kind of thing again all right so uh, you, you've got we've got it on tape or yep. hard disk so <laughs> you're committed it's happening i love it great <laughs> cool guys honestly so good talking to you uh thank you for being on dave love you as always love you too and, man you thanks know, sean we appreciate just, uh, it brother yeah thanks, keep dave. on keep good on being safe out there folks all righty